Welcome to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast. I'm Rebecca Plum, your big sister. And I'm Sean Serha, your GBF. We're not that hot or that young. But we believe it's a state of mind that helps us build adaptable and profitable businesses. We rely on the support of our design besties to get through each day. So let's explore the emotional, practical, and humorous sides of being interior designers. Welcome to the club. Hi, Sean. What's up, Rebecca? Let's welcome Shannon Lee. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? How are you both today? Hi, Sean. Excellent. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So we invited Shannon because she is an expert from Win Without Pitching. And we, I think we all, anytime we talk to each other or designers, like we could all use a little extra coaching on sales and kind of selling ourselves and our service and making more money. Understanding our worth is a big thing that we keep talking about and how to place value on that. And so I feel like that's one of the top three questions designers usually ask when we start conversations, Shannon, is what are you charging? Do you feel like it's enough? How do I explain to people what they're getting from me? And I think that's like a big part of like, of the win without pitching manifesto is being able to understand what this means and get into the minds of the way that people and consumers, you know, value things and how it, how how we can sort of guide them through that part of the process without it feeling gross or like an ick for us as, as salespeople, as the, you know, usually the, the primary salespeople for our businesses. So can you tell the hotties a little bit more about you and your background? Yeah, definitely. It's so fun to be on the Hot Young Designers podcast. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm just reaching into the past, remembering what that felt like. Same. It's Don't a worry. state of mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what we yeah. like to remind ourselves. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited to to get into all of these topics because there's there's so much that can be done that can make selling and these conversations more fun for your audience, for your market. So we'll have we'll have a good time of it today, I'm sure of that. My background is professionally, I started out on what I would describe as the client side. I worked for big Fortune 500 companies and I was working in roles covering investor relations to PR, to marketing. And I was the one hiring advertising agencies, design agencies, these types of firms to come in and and bring their creative thinking um, to these big Fortune 500s. And along the way, I really learned that I really wasn't built for the great big company and the politics and the things that you have mm. to know and the games that you have to play. I wasn't so good at it. I wouldn't trade that though, because I learned a lot about business, right? And people and the way these organizations work. And I was lucky enough along the way to have hired a graphic design firm in Seattle, which is where I live, to design the corporate reports for one of these companies I worked for and got to know the owners really well and really loved working with them. And she just asked me one day, do you want to come on board and sell for us? And I was like, yeah, I have no idea what that means, but yes, because it was a happy place to be at that design firm. It was a small experience. People cared. They were doing great work for their clients. And so I jumped. And I started doing business development. I call it selling, but in that world, it's business development Mm -hmm. because sales is sort of an ugly word for a lot of people. And that's where I met Blair Enns, who's the founder of Win Without Pitching. We brought him in to help us revamp how we went about selling. And it was just kind of 
a perfect fit. He turned into a mentor for me over the years. And and then he asked me to join Win Without Pitching as a coach. I'm in my eighth year. Oh, and that wow. happened about eight, nine, ten years ago. It took us a little bit to kind of pull it all together, but that's how I got here. Okay. So I come from a graphic design agency background. That was my first life. And I definitely thought, I mean, there's definitely some overlap. Like I feel like I knew how to sell creative work going into design. (laughs) I really had a major, um, I don't know, cold water splashed on my face. (laughs) I don't know, wake up call with just how different it was maybe it's just being a solopreneur and before I had more of an agency team around me and it just feels so much more personal, I guess, selling what I'm selling now. But that's interesting. So you definitely, you definitely get how creatives think a little bit differently. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) That's, That's really, you know, and while we are specialized in what we call the creative services or marketing services space, the thinking and the principles and the frameworks apply to businesses and architecture and interior design management accounting because it's really about this ability to sell an idea and an ability to show up and behave like an expert mm-hmm. when you're in these conversations. And so, yeah, while there are some differences, the reality is there's a lot of similarities in that creative mind and that creative professional has a really cool gift, right? And sometimes it isn't so easy to explain that and get the client to feel reassured about it all. And so that's a lot of the work that we do is make selling more fun and comfortable, but also get better at explaining the value that you create and the outcomes that you're going to deliver. And there's a trust because there isn't, there's like a gap between getting them to say yes to hiring you and then trusting you're going to be able to execute on Mm -hmm. the verbal promise sure to what they have in their heads so it's Mm -hmm. like this translation of like what's in my head is that what's in your head yeah and i think the business the the market that you're serving that your audience you know is working within requires even more reassurance and hand-holding than Mm -hmm. marketing or advertising because you're working even if it's commercial interiors right a lot of mm-hmm. times right at somebody's home, residential. Yeah. And so you have to reassure more and educate more because it's somebody's place of, you know, of existence and it's their personal money. And so it's different yet again, a little bit from selling to a corporation, but all of these things translate and apply. Uh, what do you think is like one of the biggest hangups that you see coming from, you know, particularly interior designers that's like their biggest their own self-placed hurdles or actual hurdles that that yeah. get into the way we talk about, like you said, the explaining ourselves better, communicating our expertise better. What, like, what do you th- think those top hurdles are? I think a couple of the big hurdles I see are one, how interior design firms are positioned, right? There's there's too many generalists out there. And so then it becomes really difficult Mm. for you to differentiate yourself and show that you're meaningfully different. And I also think there's too much, too much use of inside baseball jargon language. Mm. And you have to figure out a way to, to speak plain English to clients and help them understand what's about to happen and be very mindful. Do you have some examples of that? Give examples of... Do you have any examples of like the jargon that you see? Yeah. I mean, I think like when, when you're 
talking to a client and all of a sudden, you know, they're wanting to redesign a kitchen and you start talking about all the different types of contractors that are involved, you know, the tilers, the electricians, the cabinet makers, you know, all of these people and how they work together and 3D renderings and grout and, you know, like all of these words Mm. that, and types of workflow processes that people aren't necessarily familiar with until they get educated about it become tricky. And I think a lot of times people go and hire an interior design firm and I think we're all more educated these days, but they don't understand that the interior design firm does one part of a much bigger project, right? And then you have to bring in a general contractor and bring in all of these other trades experts to actually build and complete, right? So there's an ability to explain the process and what's about to happen that I think could use just some more polishing. Yeah, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of us. And then we're all, if, if like you're saying, it's also, okay, so there's a lot of us, there's a big pool. And then we also don't make ourselves as a company stand out differently, Mm -hmm. it's already confusing enough for clients. And then that extra layer of the way we communicate just being a completely foreign language to them makes it feel even less approachable along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That also made me think that like one of the problems that we're sort of contributing to maybe (laughs) is designers. I feel like the interior design community is such a um, strong industry community that I haven't experienced before. There may be just, it's the time that we're in, but there are so many Facebook groups, so many podcasts, so many experts within the industry, coaching, teaching, and all of it's wonderfully helpful. But I think we do get into that like insular jargon thing you're thinking of. Like I was Mm -hmm. thinking, just even talking about these terms like full service versus designer on call, like things that we all take for granted as language we understand. Clients do not know the difference between a consultation, a full service only. Like they could kind of guess, but they don't totally know what that means because we start, I think, talking about it to each Mm -hmm. other too much. Yeah. I think we're all guilty of it in in any profession. I think I it feels more challenging just because I've had the chance to work with enough interior designers and architects now. And and then you add that layer of, again, when it's residential design, you're in somebody's space. And so they're coming to you in kind of a vulnerable state anyway. Mm-hmm. And like worried about, oh God, is this going to turn into a money pit or am I yeah. ever going to get my house back? And so there's an, an additional layer of what I just refer to as reassurance and clarity that you need to bring in this business. Yes. I'm trying to like get to that place where I think it makes sense for designers who are listening to hear the actionable, you know, changes. So what I'm picking up from what you said, Shannon, is that it it is making ourselves not just being the generalist, but part of that to me when I hear that is saying, let's identify the niche or the thing that we do best or our, we've also referred to like that idea of this is our zone of genius, whatever that Mm -hmm. might be. It's, that's one of those first steps relating to what you're saying about positioning and then, you know, building out from that, the avoiding the jargon is really just making sure we're speaking in layman's terms, you know, person to person instead of this, you know, expert. And for me, I know I do that because part of it is trying to build my credibility through showing that I understand my industry. But mm-hmm. it's that I have to change that when I'm talking to 
vendors or suppliers or peers versus when I'm speaking to a client because they don't care if I know the difference between each different vendor or the type of tile edge detail. They just want to know what's it going to look like? Is this going to be in budget? So right. Yeah, you're right. You have to you have to kind of adapt uh, moment to moment. And I and it's not about dumbing it down. I like this point also. It's because you're right, Sean. You want to be able to to be the expert in the room and speak to that from a place of knowledge. So it's not about changing everything completely for that client, but just recognizing what might feel really foreign and doing a good job of explaining it using different words, different ideas, different analogies. You know, and the the positioning piece is so important because I think a lot of times people think that a client's, potential client's power lies in the money they have to spend. And it's not. Their Their power lies in their choices, right? And so if you are not seen as meaningfully different, they hold the power in the conversation. And I'm not talking about power in the form of like, evil, right? I'm thinking about using your power for good. And so when, as a business, you can think about what is unique about us and how do I convey that? Whether it's your market and discipline, whether it's interior design for just for kitchens, for example, or interior design Mm -hmm. to age in place or interior design for additional dwelling units, right? That's one way to tackle it. You could also tackle it through perspective. Maybe your perspective is shabby chic or only found and, you know, antique objects. I don't know. Like you have a design perspective as well that you could help kind of bring to life a little bit better why you're different than the others. And when you're able to do that, there is a shift in dynamic in the conversation and you hold the power then in a good way and you're seen as meaningfully different and you're seen as an expert. And people then begin to let you lead in these conversations and be that expert that they're wanting to hire. An audience too, right? Like, have you, do you have any examples or have seen anyone in interiors successfully niche to an audience that has been unique? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's the common one of wanting to work with a more affluent audience. What does sure. that really mean? And how do you say that without it feeling kind of, you know, tacky? Um, right. But I also have worked with, with firms who are thinking about this idea of aging in place, right? Mm-hmm. Or this idea of family, right? And and how do you create a space that really speaks to an entire family of, you know, parents along with kids across different age ranges, right? So like I've seen it done that way also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's smart. Without also offending people or typecasting yeah, them or whatever. Right. <laughs> 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 I think that there, so something we talk about a lot is this emotional component of what we do. And I mean, just to paint with a broad brush, we have a very female heavy industry. At least our listeners are primarily women. And I Mm -hmm. think there tends to be a historical fear of talking about money or maybe Mm -hmm. asking for money and value and being paid what you're worth and even determining what that is. How like how do we get more comfortable with that? And mm-hmm. something we talk about a lot is like getting out of our own way and our own personal money stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it takes some time and it takes some understanding 
to your point of like, what is your motivator or your own kind of self-limiting belief that you're bringing Mm -hmm. to this thing that causes you to kind of like freeze up when it comes to talking about money. So there's a deeper exploration that needs to happen there, I think, first. And then I also think you need to do yourself the favor to set yourself up for success. And the first way, honestly, of doing that is feeling like the credible expert. And that comes Mm -hmm. through a positioning exercise. And so when we work with firms on positioning, one of the biggest thing that happens over that 12-week period is this shift in confidence, right? They really begin to believe and understand, I know what I'm talking about here. I see patterns. I see trends. I have a portfolio to back it. I know what I'm doing, right? And just by pulling it all out of you, documenting it, developing messaging tools, it it really helps you to go through the exercise of transforming the confidence that you bring. And then I think in the sale, having a process for selling, having Mm -hmm. frameworks that you use to keep yourself organized and to approach it with this idea of, hey, we're going to see if we're a good fit or not, because we want to make sure that anybody we work with really gains from that work. And so we have a process we use, we have questions we ask, and it's just our time to really see, are we a good fit or not? And should we keep talking? So when you have some of these things in place and have some of these things on your side to help you out in the sale, that piece of the equation talking about money can become a little bit more easy, a little bit more comfortable but it does take practice, right? Like you've got to get the repetitions in and the practice in and, you know, just like anything to learn a new behavior because that's what it is, a shift in mindset and behavior. Hmm. I, I need so to download that. Though. <laughs> yeah, the, the piece of that idea of like the positioning exercise of it and really trying to like assess and understand ourselves and what we're mm-hmm. bringing and that we have value. I mean, we we hear pretty frequently of designers who've been doing this a long time, um, decades who are still like, yeah, I still feel like I'm faking it some days and I still have this imposter syndrome. And I, you know, I'm starting to hear it so often that I'm thinking, okay, this doesn't just go away because we are sort of in an industry where we are making up things sometimes. And there's so much new changing, new products, new materials, Mm -hmm. new vendors. So we are constantly in a state of, oh, I didn't know about that, or that's new to me, or mm-hmm. we'll figure out how to build it on the site. And our, our you know, the, car- the carpenter will work with me and we'll figure it out. And yeah. I don't think that's ever going to go away. I don't think anyone has, no, no designer has said yet, oh, well, once I hit 20 years, I suddenly didn't have to figure stuff out anymore. I just knew it all. I had done it. All. I think sometimes we we make that sort of balance of, oh, we're going to learn everything and know it. And then that's when I'm the expert. And I don't know that we'll ever reach 100% expertise. I I think that's that that bucket just keeps getting bigger. We'll never fill it. Yeah. I sort of hope not, honestly. Like I... I like the idea of reframing things. The The job of an expert is to always be curious and always mm-hmm. be learning and always be assessing, is there a better, different way? And also owning, hey, I did that for a while and it didn't work. So I'm changing this now for mm-hmm. these reasons, right? And I think if we can bring some empathy and vulnerability and just like person-to-person conversation into the equation and try to let some of this baggage go, it be, it becomes more 
productive and it feels better, right? Yeah, there's a bazillion trends going on. Can one person keep their finger on the pulse for everything? No. And I'd probably say that if I was in a conversation where I felt like, hey, they're talking about something that I haven't heard about, or I just heard about this new thing and I don't know a lot. I'd probably say that. Hey, I've been at this a long time. There's a lot of new trends out there. This one idea that you're talking about, it's not something that I've really spent a lot of time researching, but I'll make a note of it and go learn a little more if it's important to you. Mm. What's wrong with saying that? That's honest. And if that person on the other end like just can't handle it, fine, let's learn now that they're not a good fit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because we are going to have that happen and that confidence of, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. It's... Yeah, it's real and it's it's transparent. And clients also understand that oh, inherently there might be some limitations with this as we start to explore it together, and we'll find out the pros and cons. And yep, no one solution is perfect. And I think that's taken that that took me several years to learn that this it just doesn't exist that way, and mm-hmm. to be okay with the unknown. Um, well, that the uh, imposter syndrome of it all is part of it. <laughs> We're all mm-hmm. going to feel it a little bit differently at different times too. But I think what I've learned is to live with it. Yeah. And like I tell my, I have an eight-year-old daughter and I tell her somebody, I heard this once that the feeling of fear and excitement are really closely tied. They're like two sides of the same coin. And yeah. sometimes you can't really tell what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And I sort of feel the same way with imposter syndrome that it's, it's, it means you're embarking on something new and you're learning something and exploring something and you're brave because you stepped up to the plate in a way. So just kind of bring that into the fold. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I think it's that idea of understanding like, why am I feeling this way? What's the Mm. worst thing that could happen here? Letting yourself kind of do that postmortem, you know, and, and recognizing that at the end of the day, and this is not to diminish the work we're doing, because we say the same thing about the creative services space, but at the end of the day, we're not curing cancer, right? And what I mean by that is it, it doesn't mean that these design challenges aren't big and real and important, but it means that just t- take the weight off a little bit and take a breath and have a conversation about hey, here's why this project might be challenging. I cannot guarantee 100% certainty. And here's what I mean by that. Here are the things that might go wrong. So -hmm. let's put it all on the table and be honest with each other. And if they do, here's how I go in and correct things or try to mitigate some risk, right? This is what I mean by bring some vulnerability to the Mm -hmm. sale, it's okay, and have the very honest adult conversations that you need to have to help people be educated and then make the decision that's best for them. Yeah, that's, I think, like trying to get all of that. And that goes back to your point of like having that framework that you can rely on and making sure you're kind of putting that all up front so you're not having to backpedal or shoot, I should have told you that in the beginning. Right. You know it all. Like you can explain those unknowns basically. Right. And and one real example of a framework, if we just think about that initial conversation that we have with a client, we call that the qualifying conversation. Your job is to vet the lead. Is Are they a good fit? Is this a real opportunity? And so through the course of that beginning conversation, we want to say to that person, hey, 
It's great to be talking to you. We have a process we use to decide if we're a good fit. And this first conversation we're in today is going to be us having a chance to talk. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'm going to leave time for you to ask, to ask a lot of questions. And if we decide at the end, yeah, this is feeling good, then the next step is whatever, the on-site visit or whatever the process is. But I want everybody from the beginning to take control of the sale and lead mm-hmm. and demonstrate some selectivity as well, that you're sizing them up just as much as they're sizing you up. And this is what starts to allow for you to feel good and confident in the sale, for that client to feel like, oh, this person's in charge, you know, and for you to get what you need in that first conversation to decide, should we keep talking and and is this person mm-hmm. a good fit? And if not, why? And is it just education or is it money or is it whatever it is, right? And And start to follow a bit of that framework and path early on that I think sets you up to have more productive conversations and sets you up to have that like adult conversation, as I was mentioning, if you feel like "Mm, they're not getting it and I need to spend some time explaining. We had a um, designer on a few episodes ago that famously said, hi, Linda, we know you listen. This was like (laughs) such a power move that I had several, we've had several people tell us she, instead of doing a paid consultation, which a lot of us do, Mm -hmm. will go on consultations with kind of anyone who books us for the most part. But she does an unpaid 15-minute consult. Well, she'll go. She does a 15-minute lap. She (laughs) puts a timer on her phone. And if it's a no-go, she'll just say right away, like, I don't think this is a good fit. Whether it's the project, something else that she senses. She she might get a vibe from the people. And she's just like, nope, it's just not for me. And I'm just like so impressed with her ability to (laughs) stand in her power in that way. And I think that's something I've learned a lot from some of the... um, designers we've had on the show that they yeah they are vetting the client and I feel like I'm always the one still I'm in that like can I do your work for you please like it's (laughs) not it's not the way to be yeah gotta flip that that's you right behaving like a vendor is what we would call the order taker versus being that expert practitioner it's a dismal and exhausting place to exist, right? And so I bet Linda (laughs) has a lot of uh, calm in her life. The noise is quieted because she knows how to make decisions. The most successful business people I know are able to make decisions quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So 15 minutes, yes or no. And she's on to the next thing. That is fantastic. My inside person probably could do the same thing. Like if I was brave and strong enough or whatever enough to do it. So yeah, it's about like, okay, not being the vendor. <laughs> the power dynamic is important there because it does change it from the beginning that a lot of clients are reaching out to us because they do want someone else to take control of this yeah. process that's yes. overwhelming and exhausting and can lead to relationship issues. And they don't want to be in charge of it. And that led to them even just making the first step to inquire or send a message or whatever it was or schedule a call. So they inherently want someone to take the lead if they've already thought, I need help and this is a person who might do it. And so then we're just fulfilling on that desire of theirs, even with that first phone call of, you said you're looking for someone to take the lead and I'm going to do it starting with this call. Yes. And mm-hmm. This is what we're doing. This is what we this is what we provide. This is how we do it. And if you're a fit, 
that'll be great. If not, that's okay. Like it's, yeah. it's th- there's, I mean, there are plenty of other, plenty of designers. And I know that sometimes aesthetic is a fit. Sometimes process is a fit. Budget is a fit. They're all different factors. So knowing yeah. that before we pick up the phone is the first thing you said of where do we sit? Where is our firm? Where are we positioned? And then taking that, you know, power that we we have a right to in that first call and knowing that this is our decision whether we sign them on or not. And and inside we might all be saying, gosh, I really need this project. Like financially, I really need this to go through. But we don't, it's kind of like holding those cards close to us that clients still need to feel like we are in a place where we could walk away if we don't, if it's not a great fit, or we don't need this if it's going to be a bad relationship with the client if we're picking up on those signs. Yeah, you know what what you just landed on there is so important, this idea of they don't know that we're desperate to make payroll or they don't know (laughs) that I have this high affiliation score, which I describe as the need to be liked. And so you Mm. seek to ease tension in the sale and make it comfortable. Those are the motivators Mm. we're talking about that you got to get in touch with. And so maybe it's that. Maybe you just want everybody to be happy and you want to make friends with everybody. Or maybe you're competitive and you want to win. Or maybe you're domineering and you have to be in control. Or maybe you need to make payroll, right? Figure out what it is. Release it. So that's a process thing. Give yourself 15 minutes before your next Mm. qualifying conversation. Release it and say a little mantra to yourself. We have a mantra called the Jedi mantra at Win Without Pitching. And it is this. I am the expert. I am the prize to be won. I am on a mission to help. And I can only do that if you let me lead. And all will not follow. And that is okay. And this is what I coach my clients to do before they get on their sales calls. And if you can give yourself that gift of 10 to 15 minutes and get your head in the right space, the correct behaviors will follow in that first conversation. That just gave me chills. (laughs) It really helped. It really worked. The listeners are going to rewind 30 seconds and go forward again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is that... Is that in the book? We'll talk it's about more in that book later. Yeah, oh, no, it's, it's not. not. Okay. Yeah. I'm writing that down. Put it on my computer monitor. Write it on right a post here. it, put it above your phone when you're gonna do when you're gonna do a call because yeah, we're they need us. They they need yeah. our help, the expertise, the guidance, the support, all of it. It's money aside, it's the, the the abilities and the skills that we have already, we know are inherently valuable, even if someone doesn't necessarily place the same number on them that we do. but And know. I do my best work when I am feeling is the prize to yes. be won. I give them the best service. I'm the most creative. The ideas flow. I'm not in this like defensive feeling that just is yucky and terrible. So it's better for the client if and me, obviously, if I feel like that. It is. And exactly what you just said there, Rebecca, I love because oftentimes what trips us up is we don't know the right words to say to people. And so, Mm -hmm. for example, if you're in a qualifying conversation and that person's not letting you lead, they're trying to impose their will and their processes, that's your moment to say, hey, so sorry, but can I just ask, Like, I'm getting a sense that you're really not trusting my process or seeing me as the expert or really wanting to kind of follow along with the way that we work. Am I reading that correctly? Right? Mm. Just like, sorry, uh, let me let me ask a quick question here. I feel that I'm getting a sense that 
And if you have to say no to somebody, sometimes you don't want to say no because you feel bad. But that language that you just used, hey, this has been great to get to know you, but this is, I'm, I'm going to pass on this opportunity this time around because I'm just sensing that you're wanting somebody who is a little more willing to work within a process that is comfortable for you. And I know myself well enough to know that if I can't be leading, I'm mm-hmm. not seeing as the expert, I'm not given the creative freedom mm-hmm. I need, I'm not going to do my best work for you. So mm-hmm. it is great to meet you and I wish you luck. And hey, let's stay in touch if things change down the road. Like your reasons are valid. Let people know your reasons. And they're so true because when um, it's not that and I'm on the other side of it, it's painful for everybody. Yes. <laughs> I mean, like they feel that like insecurity yeah. or uncomfortable. And maybe they like that. I mean, some people I think get off on it, but. Yeah. That's a whole other thing. Not who you want to work with though. No. Chasing bad revenue is never right. a good thing. You never no. win. No, yeah. no, no. It's no. like those deal with the devil type of things where you're like, <laughs> yes. well, great. I got paid, but God, that was a rough like night's sleep for four weeks in a row or, you know, all of that stress, pressure, tension, everything comes with you. Every conversation is loaded before you even pick up the phone. Um, and no one does, no one does you're great work with that. Scared to open your inbox. Mm-hmm. I mean, I lived through that last year and it was mm-hmm. horrible. Okay. So I hate selling. I, I don't really, I actually kind of like it, but some people might say, I hate selling. Can I learn to love it? Like, can they really learn? I think yes. I don't like love may be a really strong word, but I think you can <laughs> I think you can learn to like it and enjoy it a okay. little more than you currently do. Absolutely. Can you okay. can you say like why we see it? I don't know if we understand it completely, but like why do so many your observation? Why do so many people feel like sales is gross or icky or whatever? Like what is that? What do you think that is? And maybe that will help us avoid those things. I think because most people think it's beneath them, if I'm being honest, and Mm -hmm. especially in a creative environment Mm -hmm. where it's so deeply personal what you create, whether you're a graphic designer or an interior designer, that you feel that the work should just speak for itself, right? That you are Mm -hmm. really lifting up the greater good through this work you do. And I believe you are too. all of a sudden we start to feel like, oh, selling is beneath us. It is not. Selling is noble because the way we think about selling is selling is helping, right? Mm -hmm. I am really interested in, can I help this client and make their world better? And so again, it's whatever story you're telling yourself that you have to get in touch with. And then I think we all have a bad experience with a gross salesperson and we don't want to be that person. And then we just equate selling to that. But then it's on you at the end of the day. You got to run your business. You have to do some form of selling. So go find an an approach to selling that works for you, right? Maybe it's win without pitching. Maybe it's something else. Find something that aligns with your values and that you enjoy. And the reason I that I think our approach works is because it is conversational. It is grounded in can I help? And it is honest, right? So we're removing any mystery to what's going mm-hmm. on here and just putting all our cards on the table. Yeah. yeah I love that. Cause when you said selling is helping, I really think that's true. And I think that stops people a lot. Um, there's this like upselling, there's a lot of upselling opportunities in what we do. Mm-hmm. And, but we also have this bad taste with like, do you want fries with that? Like, no one really feels <laughs> yeah. comfortable doing it. 
but like I was talking to our friend who's the designer too. And she, sorry, I'm throwing you under the bus a little bit, Claire, but she was talking, (laughs) she has a client that needed hardwood floors and it wasn't really part of her original proposal. I'm like, Oh, did you sell her the material? And she's like, no, I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to, she didn't say this exactly, but I don't want to come across as like, I'm trying to push them into buying stuff for me. But yeah, it, was, yeah. it would have been a really good sale and it would have probably been helping them. Yeah. Yeah. Because now they have to go to another vendor, right? And so it's go find it themselves, source it themselves, buy it themselves. Well, she probably told them where to go, but still like they, she could have probably handled it for them and it would have been a service level. So like, how can that be reframed? So it's not this gross upsell. So trust your gut. I like that yeah. you feel like upselling can feel yucky, right? Upkel- yeah. Upselling can feel like I'm just trying to sell you something more so I make more money. So trust right. your gut on that because maybe the way it's being presented does in fact make the client feel that way. Yeah. And then think about, hey, we've got a couple options. This is a language I would be using. We've got a couple options mm. to think about here. You could take this path and it will cost a bit more, but here's the pros and cons to it. Or you could stick with this path and stay at the budget you want and here are the pros and cons to it. I think it's a compare and contrast. And I think when mm. you introduce choice in the into the equation mm-hmm. and talk about the pros and cons of each option, that becomes you taking care of your client. That becomes yeah. you putting your client's interests forward, which is always what you should be doing, frankly. You shouldn't be selling something for the sake of selling something. You should be selling something because it's going to add some value for your client, right? And really explain mm-hmm. what that value is yeah. because it might not be saving them money. It might actually be just saving them time. But because we're the ones making money, we feel weird asking for it. Yeah. But yeah. And, you're not trapping them, I guess, if you give them the option. But you just brought up a good point. Understanding your buyer type and what they value. Yeah. I value time. I will pay a lot of money so that my time is Word. taken care of. A lot of <laughs> yes. people are like that, right? Most of our clients. I'm the yeah. Right. Life. Like I'm the. Will it? Will I get to the front of the line faster? Will I get yeah. there sooner? Will I give me like, that genie pass? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the <laughs> so, TSA pre-check of life, you know, like. <laughs> yep. So understand your buyer type and have those kinds of conversations with them. I know we're going through a bathroom remodel at our house right now, and for whatever reason, I decided maybe we should buy the tile ourselves and manage that. And our, we trust our contractor. He's like, okay, here's your choices. You can do it, but then you got to source it, pick it up bring it here, haul it up the stairs, all this stuff. He's like, or for X amount more, we'll take care of it for you. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to spend five hours of my time doing that. What am I crazy? Right. Um, and so it's just, it's like, let me give you the pros and cons. You choose. I'm fine with either direction. Be honest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Adding choice yeah. to it. Cause that's, I think maybe what we're worried about is that we're making our clients feel trapped or yeah. bad for saying no. So you like giving them an out giving them choices. This is the big thing that we work on in pricing strategies is this idea of what we call the one page, three option proposal. And I know everybody listening is probably like, no way is that possible. It is so possible. And you introduce choice into the equation because by giving somebody one price, one proposal, they are forced to go compare you. By giving them options you're actually thinking about different ways you can solve their problem and helping them to see the different possibilities. And you're controlling the comparison a little bit as well. So choice is a really good thing. 
It is. Is this is this like three option? Is this where we start starting to understand a little bit more of this like having one at the high guides more people into the middle yeah. and maybe that's what we love the most. That's what we want to do the most. So we create this perception of here's this other one. You can really pay a lot for it. And maybe it has all the stuff I don't like doing in design, but they're going to, if they really want to pay for it, they're going to give me a really high number for it. And that's my top option. Yeah. So this is this idea of anchoring. It's a strategy, right? There's lots of pricing mm -hmm. strategies and part of what offering three options does is allow you to have an anchor price, a great big price that everything else sits up against that can oftentimes cause that middle option to look like, oh, it looks like a pretty good deal setting up against a million dollar anchor option, right? <laughs> so there is some strategy there. But when you're creating options, I want you to create options that all will add value and that if they buy them, you can do them, right? Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. we're not trying to game it so much in that way as use some different pricing techniques. The best way to think about this is somebody comes to you and they want a kitchen remodel, let's say. Through the course of the conversation, you actually learn that the first four floor footprint of the house is really what needs to change. And there needs to be a better opportunity to enjoy some indoor, outdoor kind of cooking, mm -hmm. right? So it's not just a kitchen remodel they want. They want a different flow of traffic. They want a different environment and feel but they, they only have money for the kitchen remodel. Hey, you've just uncovered their desired future state. Mm. And you then can say in your proposal options, the big anchor option for 500,000 is a complete redesign of whatever, right? That includes the kitchen remodel, but is a better flow of traffic and feel through the first floor of the house and a brand new outdoor kitchen setup. Great. It's like all they the may, wish list. They, yeah, they may in the end say, I think I want that. I'll go find the money. Or on the low end, it might be, we'll, we'll just do the design for the kitchen remodel and then you go figure out from there. Or in the middle, it is the complete kitchen remodel where you stay close all the way through until completion, right? Mm -hmm. But what you've done is you've really uncovered their wants beyond their needs and understand why. And that allows this conversation and ability to think about, well, what are the different ways we could solve this for you? Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a space where something like that exists even like I'm thinking application to like, you know, how my model might work if I'm at a consult and I see those like, hey, we've had this whole conversation and I'm seeing three distinct paths forward right now. Do you think that can still be done as part of something like that where they at that meeting say... I hear you and I still create a one option proposal after that conversation? Or do you think it does make sense to like leave the meeting, present the three independently, you know, through proposals, let them kind of marinate on them, so to speak, and kind of like maybe pros or cons of each of those options? If you, through the course of your qualifying conversation and site visit or however your process works, you're learning that they want something more than what their re original request was. I really think there is an obligation to come back mm -hmm. to them with options, but you've got to set that expectation, right? Like mm -hmm. you need to let them know along the way what's about to happen here. And you also have an obligation to come back to them with a solution within those three options that hits what, what they originally stated yeah. in their originally stated budget. You have an obligation to do that. Right. So the idea is, 
we go through all of these steps. We learn a lot of things. We learn kind of the range of investment you're willing to make. We learn what your dreams are. We learn what you think you can probably afford today. I'm going to come back with three options. We'll walk through them and we'll zero in on one that makes the most sense for you. Then when they zero in on the one that makes the most sense, that's when you can go back and spend the time creating the detailed scope of work or whatever it is that your next step is. So it's also a way for you to manage your cost of sale and not overinvest too much time in the sale by going down a path where you're putting together a proposal that goes into great detail when maybe that's not quite where they wanted to go yet. Right. Yeah, because a full service project proposal for a you know, 3,000 square foot floor or something like that, that's we're going to take a lot of time writing that out, getting all the details great, making sure the contract has all the number of revisions. And that's very time intensive, even if we've got a template to build it from. But starting it with that, tell me which, you know, choose your adventure. Here's three options. Yeah, yeah. And you tell me what you think sounds right. And then we'll narrow in closer on all the details and requirements and commitments that go along with that step. But at least they could see the basics of something like design only is this is a I I can do that for you as a flat rate it's very compact it's a defined scope you have some predictability with that once we start moving into option 2 or option 3 we're looking at more hourly unknowns we can certainly do that but you just know that that's part of the process but we get more results and we're with you from beginning to end and yeah you know they can decide okay what is the most important value factor I get out of that? Is it the predictability of the budget? Because that's my biggest pain point. Yeah. Or is the stress, the anxiety, the pressure that we're going to take off of them super valuable? And they're willing to pick option two or three because of that, because they know that they won't be able to handle it or don't want to. Sean, you just put on a masterclass, my friend, of how you <laughs> how you present a pre option proposal. No, but did, like I loved listening to that, and I hope that felt so good for you because what you're you're doing Thank there is you. like, hey, we got options here, and each one's going to add value, and there's no right or wrong answer here. So let's talk about each of them and see what one feels best for you. That's fun. Yeah. You did and that. I feel I mean, like clients, you got it. <laughs> Thank you. I feel like yeah. clients will hear the advocacy that we have for them by showing them the options of knowing like this guy could have just sold me one thing and just left me there hanging with just that. And I feel strong armed into it now because it's all I'm getting offered and I need help. Or they can feel this empowerment of their own that I get to decide what my limits are and what my maximums are. And, you know, then it, it really does help lead to that collaborative you know we over that phrase i feel like rebecca and i agree gets used a lot and it's very like heavy-handed for a lot of environments but the collaborative relationship we want to have with clients starts with this where they feel like this is the service i picked this is the options i wanted this i'm in control of that yeah and and i can go to rebecca and say i know we said we're not going to do project management but now i just can't handle it we just found out we're going to have a baby and at that point, she could come back and say, okay, well, if we're going to last minute add on project management to your project, it's not as cheap as before because I didn't plan my schedule around this the whole time we were doing design only. And now here is my price for that service. And but that's you also a educated, of itself. Yeah. And you educated them as a potential option. So like sometimes no if early. I have a... Well, they even know it exists, like back to that jargon or like understanding, not understanding what we actually do. 
if you give them the full menu, I guess, in advance, and they only select, they're not going to get an appetizer or dessert, but the, but they know that they're on the menu if the, something <laughs> changes, you know? I think that's helpful. Yeah. You, like the, I, lo- I love watching this play out because you're actually getting a chance to kind of try this on and see what it's going to feel like for your client. Yes. And I, yeah. I've had the experience where clients are thinking they've lived in their house for 10 years and they just sit and fantasize and think like, oh, let's just vault the ceiling. Let's raise the roof line. Oh, we should change where these walls are located. And they really get creative in their mm-hmm. thinking. They have no idea. They'll admit they have no idea what that means. Yeah. And once, and we can step in and at a high level tell them, yeah, that's totally possible. But the kitchen alone is going to be $150,000. Yeah. And you want to keep this all under a hundred. There's no way that roof is getting <laughs> touched. See, and this is what happens in this moment. You shift the conversation away from how much you cost yeah. to what their desired future state and vision is. And yeah. they have to take responsibility too, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a great dynamic at play because this is creating healthy tension in the sale. I hear you. You want all these great things. I'm the same way. I want to redo it all at my house. But I also heard you say the investment that you can allocate right now is a hundred thousand. Let me just reset expectations for us. We mm-hmm. can't get all of that done within a hundred thousand. That's okay though, right? Maybe this is is a baby steps along the way over five yeah. years, right? Right. So let me just reframe it for you, get you focused on your vision, remind you, you know, it's just like it it creates a whole different dynamic. And that helpful dynamic, yeah. which is really a philosophy that Sean and I both embrace in everything. Like we just want to try to be helpful, but stand in our boundaries. Sean's much yeah. better at that than I am. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> It takes time. That's the part. Yeah. Eventually you just get so frustrated. You're like, no, I'm just going to start saying no and get better at it all. Yeah. And I think it's something we talked about recently is talking about money early and often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any tips about that? (laughs) Yeah, I do. As it turns out. Great. (laughs) I, I think that you have to just own whatever fear is going on for you. And you may even choose to voice it in these conversations. And what I mean by that is if it's hard for you to talk about money and it comes to that point in the conversation where, you know, you've got to like, have you allocated funds? What kind of an investment are you looking to make? Say that. Ah, we've come to that part of the conversation where we got to talk about money. I know that's Mm -hmm. always the awkward part, but let's just jump into it. Yeah. Typically for a project like this, we're looking at a range of 300,000 on the high end, 100,000 on the low end. How does that range feel to you? Right? Like that's one way, just own it that you hate this part too and throw a range out. Or just, hey, let me check in with you. We should probably see if we're a good financial fit, right? Mm -hmm. That's better than budget. I like that language better. We should see if we're a good Mm -hmm. financial fit. What kind of funds have you allocated for this kitchen remodel? And they don't answer, right? They're like, oh, I don't don't know. know. You tell us. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they're playing the game of sales. Then you invoke the range. Well, based on what I know, it's probably about 100,000 on the high end for design and and maybe 10,000 on the low end. How does that range feel to you? You know, so there's part of it is just 
naming whatever feels weird and you can do it right there in the conversation if you want or coming at it by floating a range to see like, do they fall over when they hear the high end number? Will they give you some feedback about what does the middle of the range feel like? Or no, we only have 5,000. Okay, let's talk about what that means. We probably can't get it done. Let's talk about a Zoom consultation. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, I think that like when people just don't know, I think we have to be the one to throw out the numbers. So that's just like getting comfortable with what some of those numbers are. And if it makes you feel better, put a little note on your phone of like, here's what the current rates are kind of at for a kitchen Mm -hmm. or bathroom or whatever. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think it's back to selling is helping. They're wondering what the number is going to be. Like everyone wants to know what is it going to cost? Like <laughs> if yeah, back to the it, restaurant with no pricing on the menu, like that's so annoying. It is. And, and even though I understand, right, like you aren't in full control of what happens after you create the designs you're in the business and and you still should have a sense, even if you have to float a range. So it's it's right. our obligation as experts mm-hmm. to know what things are going to cost. Yeah, Recognizing until you have complete set of details, you can't get super accurate, but you should always be able to give a range. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think part of that is also the research of, I, I mean, it's, we, we tell design, we've told designers, fake it till you make it. Part of the fake it till you make it is sometimes telling a client the truth, which is I've, I have yet to do a project of this scale that you're describing. And I'll be honest, I don't know offhand how much all of the architects fees are going to be, but I will follow up with a couple local architects and get just a general idea of where we're at, if that's okay with you. And I, I think that's that vulnerability that you mentioned, which is like, it's okay to say, I've never done an installation like this before. I've never. I've never had to order a completely custom, you know, curio cabinet like this before, but I'm going to imagine that we're at least above X amount because I've seen some that are in a, and we're going to start there more than likely. And then at least people know an example of, well, I did a small kitchen and bathroom model and all the fees from the architect or the permits were, you know, $3,000. Then they know if they're planning a whole home, they're at least starting above $3,000 for that. And what I like about what you just really called attention to there was just let them know if you don't know and make the offer to go get some information for them. Because what happened for me in that moment as you were modeling that language was it made me feel like I trusted you and it made me feel like, I think he's capable. I think maybe if he hasn't done it before, I kind of believe he's got what it takes to figure it out and go do it. And the other thing is, you can say that, right? What you're talking about right now, I just want to tell you before we get too much further into the conversation, we've never done an installation like this before. I think we can figure it out, but I want you to know that right now, just in case you're looking for somebody that that's all they do all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, hey, and and a lot of times people are going to be like, no, I like, I, I really like this conversation. I love the work I've seen. I think you can probably figure it out. Thanks for letting me know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's an easy out right now with, (laughs) if you ever feel like stuck with not knowing what to say next, things have changed so much in the past three years and they change (laughs) so frequently Mm -hmm. that I think just putting a pin in, you know what, I don't even want to quote anything right off the top of my head because I feel like I need to do some quick due diligence for you. 
Yeah. I'll get right back to you with what my vendor's saying because it's just been just crazy. Obviously. You don't even know if you can get it with supply chain, right? Like True. there's all these things, yeah. right? Just like this is the time we live in. So let's just be honest about some of the stuff we're going to come up against that might make it a little hard. Everything. All the steps. But part of that is the, like, this is the, the response that we get from the clients when we're having these conversations also tells us if they will be understanding in those moments, if they will be patient, if, yes. they, yeah. if they won't be looking to place blame or build resentment. I mean, I feel like Rebecca and I have talked about this a lot too, but we, we both have had and continue to have the involvement of therapy in our own relationships with, yeah. you know, with spouses, with in our own lives. And so over the years, you learn this idea of like, not holding on to anger and resentment and knowing that that will just fuel future things and learning how to manage them before they reach those phases. And it's the same with our clients that they have to know there's an out strategy if something really irked them or bugged them the wrong way. And it can start from these initial discovery conversations. And if they can show us that they can work through those ideas and be okay with a little bit of ambiguity or waiting for things early... Mm -hmm. It goes well for later in the project that, oh, this is going to be someone who's understanding. They're not just going to fly off the handle at me. If something arrives damaged, they're going to give me a couple weeks to figure out whether repairing it or replacing it is better. And they're not going to be, you know, sending me 20 million angry text messages. Like sometimes yeah, we just don't know. Job, <laughs> most of our job is like, oh, that happened. One second. Let me go figure out. Yeah, how to fix it. Like that's most of my communication all day, every day is that in between, go between. You so, are looking for behavioral clues in the sale yeah. though. And this is a good mm -hmm. thing to talk about because what people show you in the sale is a lot of times what it's going to be like to work with them. So you need to pay attention to those things mm -hmm. that feel like sharp edges or unreasonable. And you need to probably ask some of those questions to get a sense of how they respond, right? Hey, things take uh, four months now. How do you feel about waiting four months? Right? Like what what triggers you? What causes you to get a little angry in processes like these? Right. Let's talk about that now. So we kind of understand and set expectations accordingly. Yeah, that's yeah. like where the the how'd your last remodel go can be a really telling conversation yes. of yes. was it the contractor that did it? Was it your family dynamic yep. that really was the linchpin of all of this? Or yeah, you know, what didn't why work. me and not another person that you worked with before? And it's really surprising the answers that come out. Yeah, you can learn a lot, right? And and I think the other thing too is this idea of for for your business, for all businesses in the sale, like this idea of the decision maker dynamic. It, you know, it's never just one person who owns the decision. There's always an influencer, mm. especially mm. in residential, right? Like if you're talking to the wife, well, then whoever her partner is needs to come on to the next call. If the kids are involved, they maybe they don't get to the, decide, but they should be a part of the conversation, right? So really uncovering like, who's all living at the house? Who all is this going to affect, right? If it's residential, what about dogs, right? I, I'm, and that may sound crazy, but like learn everything you can about what living creatures exist in that house and what you need to be thinking about and navigating through. Yeah, because I have had some like sleepers, silent partners that yeah. like wake up at a certain point. And so yeah. it would be a good 
yeah. way to yeah. like where I never have met the husband. Yeah. I didn't even um, know where I had a husband. Who, who's but there's friend, probably right? a there's a point where I would meet him. So you what should is that? To meet him in the very next conversation is yeah. I'd say if you qualify and you're gonna move forward, the next expectation you set is that we're gonna meet everybody who's gonna be a part of this process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyone who's gonna have something to say at those nine o'clock after dinner conversations and is going to yes. sway a decision or change process at some point they've got to be brought in and feel like they have a chance to be heard or what do they th- care the not, most about? Right. Right. Like I would hope like, like Rebecca, like you said, like that sort of sleeper decision maker is like, Oh, they're just going to show up right before the check gets signed and throw a kink in everything that we've done for months. Right. And it's, we don't, that's going to be painful for everybody. And now it feels like, they're using that as a piece of that's their last lever that they control when they don't feel like they got heard or understood mm-hmm. or listened to. Now they're going to get to their, I'm using my veto power, which that's not a great, I mean, speaking yep. as thinking of my husband and I, I'm like, Oh, if one of us reached our veto power level, we're <laughs> already really in a bad spot. Like, it's all, like, when you feel like you're doing the, like, I have to now stand here and be loud and stomp to stop something from happening. It's almost too yeah. late. Like it's hard right. to recover from that. And I, I'd hate to watch us or other designers go through that experience, you know? Right. Yep. I think that like what's been so fascinating about all of this has been thinking about how designers can look at themselves differently, look at their businesses mm-hmm. differently. Something that comes up a lot in, in these conversations is the idea that we believe that designers have the right to be able to make money off of furniture and product sales if that's how they want their business to earn additional revenue. But a lot of designers feel this pressure, whether it's from the industry or otherwise, to give away discounts or they, they feel guilty not passing along their best price, meaning like their lowest possible price to customers. And I think some of that is just driven by the really consumer, direct to consumer sales environment, online environment. What would be your thoughts to talking to those designers about that thought process they have? Yeah. Like discounting is just not even a word that enters into the equation. And if it does, it's for your very, it is reserved for your very best clients in a very special situation. And I would Mm -hmm. still say the idea of discounting should be replaced with like a value add of some sort, right? I'm not going to discount this new couch, but I am going to throw in some custom pillows. I don't know. I think that you have the right to make money on what you want to make money on as long as you're doing it in a way that it has some integrity and is bringing some value mm-hmm. and the client sees it that way. You know, like why should a designer give a discount on a couch that you've gone out and sourced and learned about and made sure the stock is available? You've put the work in, right? And you're going to make sure that it arrives, is delivered, is set up and is functioning. And if not, it's on you to return it and get a different one, right? There's a fee for right. all of that. I think where the confusion comes in is we, well, first of all, designer discount, like, are you going to share your designer discount? Okay. We don't, first, we don't get a discount. We get wholesale pricing. I don't even know why that started. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause consumers who think they're in the know, that's what they'll say. But with 
internet sales, there's this other concept of designers, designers getting shopped by their clients. So there's sometimes vendors will state an MSRP price, Mm -hmm. which is usually bullshit. Yeah. Then they'll state a minimum advertised price. So hopefully they state it, which is what they are saying is allowed on the internet as a minimum price. And I think it's clients thinking if they go and Google and try to search for a lower price, I don't know. I think designers get confused of where do I set that price? Do I set it at MSRP? Do I set it as map? Do I make something up? I think you, I think you set it based on what feels appropriate. And what I mean by that is, okay, maybe you've got to do that research to see what the ranges are out there, but then you've got to understand like, what are your costs, right? What's your time investment? And then again, it goes back to choices. If that client wants to go source all their own stuff, hey, that's one choice. But here are the rules. If you're going to do that, everything has to be purchased and on site before we begin. And we have to come and inspect everything, right? Whatever it is. Or you let us manage all that. And if anything comes flawed or defective, we take care of shipping it back and getting you the correct fixed piece, right? Like So it's again... That's a path you can take, Miss Client, if that's a path you want to take. But here are the things to consider and here are my kind of non-negotiables around it. And then if I source it, here are the pros and cons and here are the things to consider, right? So it becomes Mm -hmm. more of that kind of conversation, I think. And if you're just getting somebody who they just want to buy it all, then you may decide to say, hey, I'm probably not the right fit for you. And that's okay, right? Yeah. So I started putting in my proposals and minimum expenditure of what they need to buy for me just so that it's clear. This is what I need to do a good job and make enough money on this project. And I I give them some wiggle room. So it's not the budget of the room. It's just the minimum of what I need to make or you need to buy for me. And all of that is outlined and clear up front. Sean and I both use the same guide that spells it all out like how designers make money like trying to take all that ick for some reason of like we're not allowed to make money right exactly (laughs) and explain it feel okay to say those things like this is my business right yes yes, it's my passion but I also have to make money so I have a healthy thriving business just like anybody Mm -hmm. right so if you have a fundamental disagreement with the way I run my business we should probably end the conversation right now and that's okay it just means we're not a fit no hard right. feelings. Yeah, and there's going to be there the the joy of how much expansion there's been in the design industry is that they if they really still need a designer, they are going to be able if they seek it out, they'll find a designer who doesn't do product sales, who only kind of yeah. works by selling retail and giving them a shopping list and says, "Here you go." They they will be able to find that. It may just be someone who doesn't have the same expertise levels that we do in procurement and project management. Right. It may be just someone who doesn't want, it doesn't have the patience level to tolerate that. I've learned so much of as over the yeah. past how many years. It's a service, that, le- it's a service it's, level that people yeah, might not a, want to provide. Yeah. There are a lot of designers who have the skill and ability, but not the will. So they don't want to do it right. anymore. They don't, yes. I don't yeah. want to do remodels anymore. I only yeah. do, or I only will do kitchen and bath because furniture got so frustrating and was driving me crazy and I was going to quit my business. And so I think respecting that boundary is important for us, but also healthy for customers to see that 
hey, like I'm I'm not going to be able to do that for you unless it meets these things that I have. But there are other designers who will. And, you know, I, I like the healthy, here's a list of a few other people to start reaching out to because it was kind totally. of... We were taught that I, I worked for 13 years in banking and in finance. And that was what kind of one of the things, okay, our advisor team isn't going to be able to create that for you. However, here's a couple other firms that may be able to do that. And yep. you just give them a list of three and set them free. Like it's, And that is a helpful way for you to be able to say no. A lot of times people are worried about like saying no, we're not a good fit. Because again, you just don't know how. You don't have the right, right. language. But what you just did is one way to one way to say no, and I'm going to send you on your way with some other ideas of people to talk to, and that feels better for you and helps that client, right? So yeah, that can be really a, a productive way to keep yourself disciplined as well, and then yeah. hopefully avoid some of the guilt. I know we all but yeah. we all have that. I want to be helpful. I want to be able to offer something for people who need it. Yeah, but also I, we protect ourselves and our businesses in the way that we spend our time and energy and. Part of the, it's like easing the blow, so to speak, is, but here's a couple places to start if you're going to keep looking or. Yeah. You're also kind for them. Resources. Like you're giving, you're giving them a good resource that would be a better fit for them and get them the outcome that they're looking for, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they're not going to get with us. Okay. So no more saying discount. That's like a reframe. I mean, yeah, there's so much psychology that goes into this and testing that out in different ways. I mean, any designer listening who has any client ask if they share their designer discounts, please just say, no, that's called wholesale pricing. Yes. <laughs> and then <laughs> educate what wholesale actually means. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. No one goes in and like this is comes up all the time. Like no one goes into Target and asks them how much they paid for this bottle of shampoo from their vendor yeah that's ridiculous it's just not how it works <laughs> they right. seem to, clients think they can do it with yeah. us though it's weird should, it's almost like the, the point out the absurdity you know like hey if you want to turn over all of your financial statements to me and your bank account information for review then i'm happy to share with you <laughs> what my pricing str- i mean I, like i sometimes almost <laughs> i'll like, write your budget for you yeah, <laughs> yeah. Out the absurdity that's true i think this has been a, a day full of takeaways, and I hope that the hotties have been taking a ton of notes. I know Rebecca and I re- wrote down the Jedi mantra, and I know that the hotties are going to be giving themselves their own mantra to make sure that they understand that they're in the position of, of power, that they are the prize to be won for their clients, and to really set themselves up to, to create more valuable proposals and a more valuable like sales process in all of this. It's just extremely valuable. Good. And I hope by hotties you're talking about the three of us, right? Totally. Of course. <laughs> we're the we're the hotties on the platter today. No. Yeah. I, I, are the prize hotties. I've I've loved the conversation and my goal is always like, let me give you some things to to help you go do something different the next moment in your business. That's always the idea. So I, I hope everybody too has taken some of this and will have this attitude of experimentation and go try some things. Can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about Win Without Pitching and the work you do? Yeah, sure. I I think our website's the best place, just winwithoutpitching.com. And I told Sean and Rebecca, I'll follow up with some links to free chapters of our couple books that you can download as well to get a taste that way. Yeah, we'll add that into the show notes as well as probably Instagram. 
when this is coming out. Cool. This has been amazing, Shannon. Thank you so much for making this such a powerful day for us and for our listeners. Absolutely. Can't wait to go sell. Yeah, yeah let's sell go sell. Stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Shannon. <laughs> you bet. Good to be with you both. Until next time. Stay hot, designers. Thanks for listening to the Hot Young Designers Club podcast. For more on what we talked about today, check out the show notes. Your support helps us grow, so share with your design besties. And subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Our conversations continue on Instagram. And be sure to download our monthly resources on our website and our Patreon. 